So like I was nine years old, altar serving for the first time. You know, I'm this elf that's like flowing over my ankles and uh, nearly burning myself with a candle. Then suddenly the creator of the universe is making himself known to me in my heart. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin. My name is Nate Hoffman. I am the Communication and Development Coordinator at St. Anthony of Padua, and today I am joined by our seminarian, John Clark. What's up, John? How's it going? It's going good. I'm great. Welcome to St. Anthony of Padua. Yeah, thank you very much. So, you have been assigned by His Excellency, Daniel DiNardo. Is that the his, term? For his eminence. His eminence. Daniel Cardinal DiNardo. Daniel Cardinal DiNardo. To spend your year here, you're on your pastoral year, is that yeah, right? Yeah, pastoral year, which is a, an internship year we take in our um, later in our theological studies. Uh, so this is my fifth year of seminary uh, out of seven. And I, uh, yeah, I've been assigned here to St. Anthony's, and it's very exciting. Full year of parish life. Absolutely. So what's the, what's the idea behind the, this, this year for a seminarian? What are you supposed to be doing or learning? So a pastoral year is really interesting. You know, there's they can only teach you so much in seminary, um, especially about, you know, who you are in a parish setting. So a lot of what I will be doing is sort of following the priests around, seeing their day-to-day, uh, especially not just sacramental life, of course, helping with the liturgy and all things like that, um, but also seeing, you know, fun things like finance meetings and tough conversations. Oh, <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Everything you know, electric. That you, even. you don't think about when you're when you're first thinking about becoming a priest. Well, yeah, it's funny. My brother went to seminary, um, and for seven years or six years or something, and he learned all about philosophy and theology. And then you're just kind of thrown out into the real world, like a real parish yeah. with real problems that yeah. don't match up to like you know, what a good definition of the Trinity might be. You know, I can write a paper on it, but, uh, like, how do I direct the funds from that have been donated to the school? And, you know, you need to make sure they're dispersed correctly. You know, if you're at a smaller parish, that's all the way up to you. At St. Anthony, you have tons of people and staff and volunteer also helping, but that's even a different thing because you're the boss of all of those people as a pastor. So, I mean, how do you prepare priests? Let's fix the seminary system right now. I think the seminary system works pretty well. <laughs> Thank God. And I mean that sincerely. But part of why I think I'm here at St. Anthony's is because it is such a big place. And mm-hmm. we in the Archdiocese, we have a, a lot of big parishes. And so it's really good to see how all of the different staff members uh, work together, how the directors work with their teams, and sort of all of those communication aspects. Um, just realizing that, that pastors uh, have a lot on their plate, and um, it's, it's really cool to see everything that's going on here. It's really invigorating. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a major part of what's going on here for me. Takeaway so far from St. Anthony of Padua? A lot of jokesters. <laughs> no. Uh, Big joke guys here. Lot, lots of jokes here. No, it, and that's that's a good part, you know, healthy office culture. Um, people seem to get along. But everyone's been super welcoming. I think that would be the first thing I would say from, um, from parishioners to staff um, to the priests themselves. You know, everyone has has been extremely hospitable uh, and I've always felt in the loop and, you know, immediately I've just been here, but I already have a pretty good sense of what's going on. So that's really cool. Good. Great. All right. Let's, let's get into the time machine here. Sure. Where are you from? Uh, so I grew up in a suburb of Detroit called Livonia. Uh, and that was until I was 12 years old. And we moved down to Texas to Cyprus. Oh uh, yeah. 
And so Prince of Peace is where I claim is my home parish, which isn't too far from here. And um, Can so we I rewind? Did, let's go to Michigan again. Let's go back to Michigan. So I our, love Michigan. Michigan's awesome. I've spent two weeks in Michigan. It total. is a beautiful place. I loved it. I, one week was in Detroit and one was... Uh, uh, blank, and it was for Catholic Heartwork Camp. So we were, oh, cool. We were, yeah, all around the country doing these w- mission weeks, and I, I thought my drive through Michigan was gorgeous, absolutely phenomenal. I loved it. Yeah, uh, it was amazing growing up there. Um, really, I I relish that time. Uh, I don't have any family up there or anything like that, but um, I was the biggest, you know, Michigan Wolverines fan growing up, and my brother went to U of M. Uh, so we still we still have a lot of Michigan gear laying around the house. If I if I go back to to think about Michigan in my life now, uh, I give a lot of credit to a camp that I went to in the summers in northern Michigan, uh, still in the Lower Peninsula, but in the north. Not one of the youpers up there. No, I was never never a youper, Good. never that cool. Um, but it's a camp run by the Archdiocese of Detroit called Camp Sancta Maria and uh, Camp St. Mary, and mainly a lot of Catholic school kids. I was a public school kid, but it was built so that, you know, these Catholic schoolboys could um, have a place to sort of keep getting formed over the summer and get out of their parents' hair. Mm. So uh, a lot of fun stuff going on. You know, they've got a beach and horseback riding, sports and games and things like that. Um, But for me, uh, it was also where I first experienced daily mass. Uh, I had yearly confession there. It's where I first experienced Eucharistic adoration. It's where I first experienced the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, and I went for, to that camp from 7 to 16. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so even even when we moved down to Texas, I, I asked my parents, like, can I please, please, please go back? And uh, I would go stay with friends in the Detroit area, you know, all the guys I had grown up with. And their parents would graciously put me up. And then I would go to this camp for a few weeks and— uh, that became sort of a yearly retreat for me. So it was a really, uh, really important place for me and in my spiritual journey. That is super cool. That's I, I love how often I hear that's that a similar story where someone is uh, describing how they came to the faith or or what it meant to them in their youth, and it, it revolves around a camp, like a, a week a experience. Sometimes, usually in the summer, where they were sent away somewhere, and you know, usually with other. Uh, men, other boys or other girls, usually there are, and tell me if this is the case for Camp Santa Maria, there are like college-age workers yep. basically living out the faith in a super fun way. Um, and you you hear that so often, and I love that, you know, for for folks who are in college to go out and work there. We can talk about that lit journey in your life later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because that's... I didn't get a chance to go to those camps, but it, I did get a chance to teach at these types of camps and, and work and, and, and live with other, other fellow college students and witness to kids younger than us. And that was where I sort of came into the faith. So I, I love these camps, whether it's Life Teen or a local diocese camp or something like uh, Catholic, um, Catholic, Heart. Catholic Heart that travels around the country doing mission work. Yeah, that's awesome. I recommend it to any anyone, anyone who's just looking for a thing to do, whether you're... Uh, someone who's going to the camp as a, uh, a high schooler or younger or someone who's going to be working at it in college or after college. Yeah. In the Archdiocese of Detroit, they send some of their seminarians up there um, to 
you know, during the summers, every now and then to, to staff. To staff, yeah. That was, Maria. that was my memory uh, in my home diocese. We had seminarians who were just, you're, you're in, like it would be, you would be in charge of the, the camp for the summer. You know? Yeah, and they, I, I think some of them, you know, dutifully went and worked in the kitchen. I think they called them uh, junior counselors. Nice. So they didn't even get to like work with kids all that, all that much. Um, but I, I remember I was like 10 or 11, uh, and a guy saw me, one of the seminarians saw me with Lord of the Rings, uh, and I sort of freaked him out. He goes, why do you like Lord of the Rings? I was like, oh, I find a lot of spiritual fruit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what? Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, and I remember having this like conversation with, it was sort of a overly adult, but like not a bad way, but just mature conversation about the spiritual uh, fruits that are found in literature. Uh, <laughs> How old were you at the time? I was 10. Yeah. Um, but it was awesome, right? And and that, I think, was a big part of sort of planting the seed um, towards priesthood. So, yeah, all sorts of camps. And I think, I think something about camp culture, Catholic camps, is they helped me understand the value of taking time away to go to a distant place, to go to a place that's maybe a little bit secluded, to have time to pray. So as an adult, I don't need as many games mm-hmm. or, you know, fun activities going on. I don't need to be playing uh, Euchre. That's a Midwestern card game uh, all the time to, you know, come closer to God. But I do need to go away every now and then and have time to pray. Um, and so it really helps set the stage for a retreat and sort of what a yearly retreat would look like for me. So that's huge. So you've spent time in, you spent time at that camp. And then if you, if we fast forward, yeah, you, uh, helped out at a life team camp. I did. So my freshman year of college, the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year, I worked at life team camp Covecrest. Uh, and I had gone to Covecrest as a teen in high school, uh, with a group from Prince of Peace. Um, and I worked in the kitchen there. My, yeah, I was 19. Um, it was a great time. And, um, 13 weeks in the Georgia mountains uh, with daily prayer, mm-hmm. uh, men in community. So I lived in a house yeah. with three bedrooms and 13 guys on bunk beds, you know, um, and they would all smoke cigars and I would take out a bowl of ice cream uh, <laughs> and I'd be like, this is my tobacco, yeah. uh, <laughs> sugar. Uh, but I mean, it was an awesome, an awesome place and life teen camps do a lot of great work and I lot, saw a lot of teens have really transformative summers, things that I had experienced personally, um, and getting to just walk with them and doing that uh, was was such a great opportunity. What are some specific memories from from the summer that, that stand out to you years later? Uh, I remember Anthony of Padua sending a group. Yeah, uh, that's us with like 120 or 130 teens, and they took up like half of the summer missionaries. Uh, you know, because all the missionaries get assigned to, to groups. And so all, all the small groups, like half the camp was St. Theodore Padua. So I remember them coming, big, loud, and Texan. That was a whole, a whole thing. Uh, so that was exciting and fun. Um, I dominated in a camp game called Flickerball, which is like handball. Uh, but if the ball drops, you have to flick it up with your foot to a teammate. I was a very good Flickerball goalie. And then I had a, a teammate who would play all of the soundtrack of Hamilton, which is a Broadway show. Um, he played it like every day for seven weeks until we made him oh stop. Oh my gosh. It's like a two hour long so show. So this would have been like summer of 2016, probably? Uh, 
This was 2018. 2018. So two years later, uh, even still, way still after Hamilton. the Hamilton fact. Yeah. Yeah, and um, he's a Steubenville guy. Just loved the show. We made him stop, but hey, it's uh, a it's a cool show. After seven weeks, I had it memorized against my will. Uh, but he and I were the only ones that would work Monday afternoons, and I would I'd be like, hey, you, you can <laughs> you can listen to it. Now you can't do it the rest of the week, but you can do it today. Can we turn on Wicked or something? <laughs> Literally any, uh, anything else. Okay, so I want to talk about so many other things because you also mentioned uh, Lord of the Rings. I dangled it out there. You, you, yeah, you. It was a primer for the conversation, and we're going to get to that. So, folks, stay tuned. Uh, but right now, in your story, we're, let's go back. You're, you're a Prince of Peace. You yeah. end up at. Uh, at UT, right? You go to Texas. Yeah, so after high school, um, I was discerning a bit through high school, and uh, I met with Father T.J. Dulcey, who's the pastor at St. Martha's in Kingwood now. He's the vocation director at the time. He said, why don't you go to college? Keep in touch. Uh, so I did. So I, I went to UT. Uh, something good has come out of Austin, I like to joke. Uh, <laughs> and my wife went to UT. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a super faithful community. Uh, at UT. My freshman year that summer, I, I worked at Camp Covecrest, and then uh, my sophomore year, I lived in a discernment house, which the Diocese of Austin has right off campus. Uh, so sort of, I couldn't date, um, but I, and I think I, I had reduced rent, <laughs> um, but there was a... <laughs> Those are the two main memories. <laughs> that was huge, yeah. <laughs> Cheap living and no girls. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. Uh, but also... There was a weekly, um, there was a weekly like house night. So it was every Wednesday night. You had to be at the discernment house. There would be a holy hour. There would be dinner. Um, so the priests lived in the front house. There were two priests living in the front house, and then the discerners lived in the back house. They were connected by a bridge. Uh, and so we would all get together for dinner, evening prayer, holy hour, and then a talk. And the talk was either about principles of prayer in general, or principles of discernment in particular. Uh, and that was just a huge year for me, personally, um, because my discernment became much less like, God, tell me what you want me to do uh, with my life. Like, all of my prayer used to be like, it through high school. You know, I would sit down to pray and it'd be like, God, tell me what you want. And, um, you know, the Lord would tell me, like, John, I love you. And I would sort of miss it. I'd be like, oh, sweet. <laughs> cool, you want me to be a priest, right? Anytime I experience God's love. I would, I would sort of misconstrue it for myself. And so just realizing, um, like, if I allow prayer to be prayer and receiving the Lord's blessings uh, that he has prepared for me, discernment will flow much more naturally. And so discernment got a lot easier during that period um, because it was a really simple prayer. God, if you want me to be a priest, make me want it. Um, you know, here's my will. I'm coming to you daily. Place desires in my heart if if you want me to be a priest. So um, the Lord was good on that prayer, good in his promises, and I started to feel things like, I want to be a good intercessor. <laughs> like started saying stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. like I've never had that thought before in my life. Um, I started to be more attentive to the liturgy and to start forming opinions about the liturgy, realizing how much it impacted me. Um, I realized how much I love teaching people and you know giving talks and on retreats and things like that. Um, and how happy all these things made me. And so by the time college was done, uh, December of my senior year, it was like, 
a super easy decision, right? Um, so I was like, wow, uh, all the things priests do make me happy. So, so it was never framed like you never heard a voice saying, you're going to be a priest, John. You, n- you never heard it so plainly like you're going to be a priest, but instead you, you just asked for the desire. Yeah. Is that a sort of principle of discernment? Put the desire on my heart for what you want. Yeah. So St. Augustine wrote uh, a long letter uh, called the Letter to Proba, P-R-O-B-A. Buddy of his? Um, a guy speaking spiritual counsel. Okay. And um, he writes all about the human will, how God interacts with us, and love. And I remember one of those talks from Father Jonathan Rea, shout out. Uh, he's the chaplain, I believe that's his title, the chaplain of the University Catholic Center at the University of Texas. Um, I remember he gave us this letter and a whole talk about it for an hour and a half. And that was really the principle at heart. Mm-hmm. Give God your will. Allow him to place desires in your heart. Um, and the other prayer, there's a second prayer. Uh, Holy Spirit, show me what I desire. <laughs> um, so help me to be attentive to what I find makes me happy. Um, it's also a scary prayer because it shows you your sins, <laughs> right? The bad things that I desire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but you need to root those out if you're going to desire good things. So, yeah, uh, just a huge, huge principle, right? Letting the Lord move my will. And I do remember the Mass where I decided, like, I'm going to do it. It was so, your senior year? Yeah. So, so it was 2018, Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and a priest was visiting. I was at UT. It was around finals time. The priest was visiting, and he gave a really long and a really bad homily about the Immaculate Conception. Um, and I For was, or against? I'm <laughs> uh, it was sort of ambivalent. Oh, that was geez. like part of the issue. It was sort of like, ah, I don't know about all this. Oh, it's like, gosh. I would like you to know a lot about this. Oh, man. Uh, and I was sitting there, and, you know, when I was younger, I would have railed against it, right? Like, oh, man, I could do so much better. Um, but that wasn't my thought at all. And so I accepted this sort of mediocre homily. And then uh, I was kneeling there, and it was consecration at the Mass. And I just recognized, like, this priest has so much more to offer than I do. And, like, his talent just isn't preaching. But he's an old priest, and he's a faithful priest, and he's here for me. And he's giving me God uh, in the Eucharist. And, Lord, I know I'm not much. I know that my skills are sort of meager. Um, and I have a poor heart, and I'm a sinner. Um, but if you can work in me, you know, uh, just like a shred of what you've given this priest, I know that you can save souls with that. So that that all happened in like a half second uh, during the consecration. Right? Wow. And um, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And um, I launched out after mass and I had a bunch of my friends were in the atrium and I just told a bunch of them like, I'm doing it. I'm going to seminary. It's happening. And they were like, oh, finally, thank God. Finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I grabbed one of my best friends and we went and got Gus's fried chicken on 2nd Street. <laughs> I'm celib- not familiar with Gus's. It's a chain, but it's delicious. Been going to Austin a little bit more lately. Yeah. Um, P.T. Ter- P. Terry's. P. Terry's. P. Terry's. Uh, I'm a big fan of P. Great, Terry's. Great Austin burger chain um, with 70s Googie architecture. Yeah. Super fun. 
looks like the Jetsons. It does. Yeah, it's great. It does. It just makes cheap it feel burgers, tasty burgers. Cheap, cheap, uh, and still delicious. And I, I, you know, good, good meat. Good, good shakes. Good shakes. Good shakes. Wow. So something good has come out of Austin. Something good has a, come out of Austin. A seminarian, God willing, a priest. In how many years? Uh, three years to ordination. Three years to ordination. Yeah. And seminary's been in a word so far. Uh, wow. Um, that's a t- that's a tough question. I didn't set you up for this question. No, happy. Seminary's been happy. Really? Yeah. Like it's a place where I'm challenged and often feel fulfilled. I have great friends. Um, I feel like I'm making growth every year. And um, yeah, it's a house of prayer, and it's a house of where we have a lot of fun too. Um, it's forty guys, and you get to know everybody that you're with. And so it's just a great place to be. And, and every guy has a story uh, of how they got there and why they're right. still there. And to be in a house of prayer, especially, where you just know, even if I'm not close to, you know, one of those other guys, maybe he's in a different class and from a different diocese and we don't really have the same friends. Like, I can trust that he knows the Lord, that he trusts the Lord, that he's a man of prayer, uh, and that he would have my back for anything. Um, so to be in a, a place like that is just awesome. What I've seen in my small experience with guys entering seminary um, and just knowing them and then watching them progress throughout the years is that, especially if you go in straight out of high school, yeah, which is a lot of guys do, a lot. which I think would take a tremendous amount of courage. Um, but so often guys go in more or less boys and, and become men after a series of years, you know, a number of years. So the formation aspect of seminaries is what I see most often. Obviously, the prayer and the intellect and everything else also is built up alongside that, but what's visible is that uh, the, the formation of, of a man um, in the years of seminary. Not yeah. that you're there yet, John. No, no. Well, <laughs> it's, it's sort of funny. Like, I say three years, and people are like, oh, wow, that's so long. Like, you must be chomping at the bit. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> you know, I need to keep growing, and I, I have my goals for how I would like to keep growing, and I recognize that I really need these three years. Mm-hmm to be a good and holy priest uh, right out of the gate. And, yeah, I mean, I remember I, I gave a talk to new seminarian parents one mm. year, um, and then there were some moms present as well. Some other parents of seminarians were there, and then me as well. So they spoke a little bit, and I spoke. And one of the, the new seminarian's parents was like, when I hear John talk, he talks about growth. But when I hear you guys talk, you talk about change. Uh, and it was a really funny moment, but it's, it's totally true. Like seminary is a place of growth and we talk about four different pillars of formation, so-called human, spiritual, intellectual, and pastoral. And, uh, it's a really holistic thing, right? So for guys that are 18, sometimes that's, you need to make your bed and shower every day, please. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) cause that's something an adult does. Um, you need to comport yourself well in a professional setting. You need to be able to be discreet and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, obviously, the intellectual side and the spiritual side are what most people think about. Um, that is a lot of our time. A lot of our time is in the classroom. A lot of our time is at prayer, uh, doing spiritual reading, having spiritual conversations with one another. Um, so if human, you know, taking, taking care of yourself, uh, playing sports, making sure you eat well, all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, and then pastoral formation is sort of the catch-all, right? So if human formation is sort of the floor, right, you got to be a good 
we, we have a phrase in theology that grace builds on nature. Right, I've heard that. Uh, so you need the nature to be good for you grace to, be, to, to elevate it even more. You need to be a good man to be a good priest. Is that is that sort of that, that saying? Yeah, in some ways. Um, but I think it applies for, for everything, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you need to be a good man to be a good husband. Like yeah, or or you need to go to confession if you'd like uh, communion to be effective right. in your I in see. your heart. Um, so, but but grace doesn't work against nature; it works with nature, right? So God elevates the gifts that He's already given us in nature, uh, and just who we who we are day to day. And so, yeah, you want to be a good man. So that's sort of the floor, and intellectual and spiritual formation are sort of the pillars. Um, this is one way of sort of thinking through this whole system. And then what is that all building towards? Uh, it's a man whose life is all about pastoral charity, about uh, being a vehicle of God's love to other people. So uh, sometimes that pastoral pillar can get a little bit, you know, uh, nebulous, a little bit cloudy in what it might look like in terms of like writing out your goals. But um that's what we're all working towards is to being a man of pastoral charity. So pastoral year and uh, pastoral assignments that we have throughout seminary are a big part of that. Um, so I've been blessed to be able to work in hospitals in Dallas County jail. Uh, and uh, I've, I've taught CCE COVID sort of put a hamper on things for a little bit in sure. terms of uh, working in parishes, but um, and now, now I get to be here. So that's well. I so hope exciting. this year you're able to get experience in all of those areas and touch on uh, the confirmation classes we teach, or hop, pop over to Little Saints to see what the kindergartners are up to, or go volunteer with Colby, uh, which is a prison ministry that. We yeah, have. no, I would love to love to be helping out with all the ministries we have here. There's so many to pick from, so many, um, and so many to to just get engaged with. So. Yeah, prison ministry is some of the best work I've I've done. I always hear that from guys. Uh, I, I need to get involved. I mean, it's it, it is really just incredible. Uh, some of the memories I have in Dallas County Jail is is just a normal jail. It's not even like a full on prison, um, and that was for you know liturgy of the word services in fifteen minutes in a pod. We go pod to pod, right? So you barely even get time to meet the guys. Um, but to recognize that the Lord is working even there, uh, that was awesome. John, we're going to hear a lot more from you as you're through your time here. I want to get into two two things about you and me that we share, two loves. One is Lord of the Rings, the other is chess. That's right. Are these two of your loves? They are. I have many loves. You have many loves, sure. Um, they're also two of my loves, and... and I'm okay with that. <laughs> there are two things I am passionate about. I, I love Lord of the Rings. I just did a reread of what my probably 25th reread of the book, Lord of the Rings. Mm. I was I was inspired. Mm. I loved every second of it. I, and what I loved this time was that, well, this is, I loved it differently than I had before, which is, I see, I think is something like, it's almost like scripture. Oh, I, was about, I was literally about to say, it's, it's like, like scripture. Read, ever ancient, ever new? If you ever read the tale of the prodigal son, you're going to like find something different the 25th time. And I was like, wait a minute, is this, was this inspired in some way? And and I'm not saying that it wasn't because well, ta- Tolkien was devoutly Tolkien, Catholic. Tolkien's view of the, of uh, creation, I think that's a great place to start. Let's go all it's, the way back. Some of the spiritual insights. Um, Tolkien himself, he, he talks about 
uh, co and sub creation and sort of his view of uh, working with God. And in some ways, Tolkien views, I think, Lord of the Rings and sort of the whole universe that he's built as um, part of God's plan for the entire world, right? In some sense, the world of Lord of the Rings is real because it was in his mind and it was on paper. And therefore, God also thought of it when he made the world. Um, so <laughs> That is an interesting way of putting it. He, Tolkien, in other writings, has talked about discovering the world. And, right. and he, he yeah, would yeah, frame yeah. like a specific character kind of appeared one day, and he didn't know anything about him, but he started writing about him. Yeah. So he's, he did see it. He saw his own particular work, and then he saw the, the work of good artistry in general as being, a like you're saying, co-creation or, or, or sub-creation under, under um, the Lord's creation. Right, and in many ways, that's that's how uh, we work, mm-hmm. right? That uh, when I make something, it's really first God's work, and I'm I'm sort of an administer of it. And everything that's good about it, this doesn't take away from the fact that I, I made it or I worked on it. Everything that's really good about it is first from God and then from me. Um, and you can even say that it, yeah, it is only good in as much as it participates in the Lord's yeah goodness, and it's. Only bad in as much as I supplied my own thing, you right? Know what like I mean? all of its defects are from my humanity, right? And not from God. And in that way, it does seem like this book, Lord of the Rings, it it stands up to um, so many like magnifying glasses. If you if you really scrutinize it, it does it does really <laughs> work with the Lord's creation. And because he wrote it from a Catholic worldview, yeah. yeah, only a Catholic could have written Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Tolkien borrows uh, the phrase of the the you catastrophe, the ending that is good. Yes, you right? uh, is a Greek prefix that means good. The good catastrophe, right? So like Eucharist is the good gift. Um, it's the good catastrophe that that the world is careening towards ultimate happiness, um, like our souls and like God's plan for the world. So he had this view of literature that um, it should not end up bad. Right, so Game of Thrones is sort of this like twisted version of, of Lord of the Rings that ends in catastrophe, right? It's, it seems if he um, ever finishes those books, we'll find out. <laughs> it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Whereas Tolkien's world is getting better and better. Well, um, and and it gets better in a way that that is uh, accidental is not the right word, but uh, faded. So the like the story ends and not ends, but uh, part of the story is Frodo. Not throwing the ring into the, the crack of doom. Spoiler alert! Sorry if if you yeah. haven't read, read <laughs> you haven't read Rings, it. <laughs> it's seventy years old, so get to it. But yeah. yeah, Frodo fails to throw the ring into the cracks. He yeah, claims he it for himself. He totally fails. But due to some of his actions earlier, not killing Gollum and allowing him to live, the U catastrophe would be like Gollum stealing the ring and suddenly slipping and falling into the crack. So like you, the 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 image of it careening towards goodness is, is really interesting like it just like kind of looks like a series of coincidences but not at all it, it is because everything you've done in the past also is affecting what's happening uh to you currently you know yeah. what i mean uh holly ordway is a is a scholar uh, a literary scholar she's at hbu i believe houston baptist or at least was and she wrote a book through word on fire called tolkien's modern reading it's a great analysis of um, all of all of the sort of modern texts that have actually influenced him, and we think of him as sort of like 
this may be old school and kind of stuffy guy who kind of a Luddite, right? He didn't love technology, but she shows there's sort of a deeper thing going on interacting with the world. Uh, and she has a whole section in that book talking about the virtue of pity in Tolkien, um, which she identifies as mercy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that Frodo, Frodo is sort of like the consummate figure of this. He keeps looking at, at Gollum, Schmeagol, Gollum. Uh, you got a good Schmeagol voice? No. Me neither. No, I it's not good. I, I won't even try. Uh, but he keeps looking at him with pity. Not, not in this sort of like, oh, you poor thing. Uh, but with mercy. Um, and so in the end, uh, his prior mercy that he gives, you know, saves him from himself, which is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, uh, that was hard to grapple with, I think, in, until I realized what was going on. You know, you first read the book. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I loved something different about it this time around. The first few times I read it, it's just a crazy adventure. You know, I, I saw the I had a copy of the book that was that had Aragorn and Legolas on the back cover and Gimli, I think. And I was like, who are these guys? And then I started reading and it's like this this awesome, fun adventure. And you meet Strider uh, and he's like, oh, my gosh, he's an old king. Who is this? And, it, and that that part is what attracted me. And then as you reread, you 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 stumble upon these other things that are that are like the pity that that Frodo shows or or the courtliness of. Aragorn and Aomer and all the the knights, you know, the manliness of of all of them. Mm-hmm. I can't recommend it enough. You like the new show? Uh, yeah. So the new show, uh, for those who don't know, uh, is an Amazon production called The Rings of Power, and it's set in the Second Age. <laughs> and um, I I'm liking a lot of it. Um, I was I was talking with some friends from college, and one of them. Uh, pointed out he's like if this was just a fantasy show i would give it like nine out of ten i think it's super fun you know fantastic world building really um you know like the set creation is really done uh, beautiful. costume design's beautiful. awesome the writing is getting a little bit shaky at points right. but like um and then he said for a second age show and he's he's read a lot more of the sort of history of of middle earth and stuff than i have is for a second age show you know they're they're missing a lot four out of ten <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely yeah. fallen short in terms – like, Tolkien didn't write the dialogue for these folks. He didn't really write a lot of the detailed story for this. He wrote more big-picture big history for this period of time. So I, I think it's like a – it's definitely not a one-star show, you know? No, uh, no it's, I, it's, there's it's a, valuable stuff. Yeah, it's, it's TV 14, which yeah. uh, that's a win. Yeah, uh, sit down with your kids and watch this. It's not like you can um, not with your young kids, but because there is some scary times. But it's yeah, yeah. not like you. It's not like some shows these days where you're, you're like embarrassed to have it on in the house. You know? Yeah. No, there's it, no it's, cursing. It's not lewd in any no, way. Yeah. It's good. It's um, good. So that that's all big wins. And um, no, I, I like. I think Galadriel's super cool. She's great. Uh, I think the Numenorians. Fascinating. Uh, fascinating culture. Who are they? Uh, right? Is it? Are they riffing on Greece or Egypt or like maybe Arab influences in Spain? It's all of them. It's none of them. It's super cool. To quote, uh, oh, never mind. I'll forget I said anything about that quote just now. But end quote. End quote. <laughs> all right. Lord of the Rings, good. Book, good. Movies, great. Hobbits, movies, not good. Hobbit movies, pretty bad. Uh, Sorry. Current TV show, fine. We'll fine. see how just it goes. Just fine. We're only three episodes, and it's still coming out. Let's get into a different passion of ours. <laughs> Chess. Chess. Big chess guy over here. Yeah. 
Uh, How many times have you won the seminarian championship? I'll ask you so you don't have to bring it up yourself. Five times. Five times. Five-time champ of the semesterly seminary uh, contest. Shout-out to Father Jacob Ramirez, newly ordained and parochial vicar of Sacred Heart in Conroe, who beat me uh, last semester. Oh, wow. So you didn't win the most recent one. I did not, but I, I won all the other ones. This is good for me. You're on a cold streak. All right, I'll take you when you're cold. So... Uh, it started, I was playing with a buddy from college who went to Arizona um, for to get a master's degree in geology. And we wanted to keep in touch, so we would FaceTime each other and play chess at the same time. We would play each other online. I've done the same thing with my buddies. This is how I kept up with some guys over COVID. It was like, hey, you want to wake up at 6 in the morning, play chess, and catch up? Yeah, and COVID was like sort of, even, like we were already doing this before COVID, and then COVID hit, and so we played a lot of chess. Yeah, chess is... Uh, it, it doesn't have to be, like, a stuffy, pretentious game. Uh, it's just kind of fun. I think playing online has shown people that. Um, it can just be, you know, it's fascinating if you like puzzles. Uh, it's like it's playing competitive puzzles. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, the competitive nature of it, the the, the strategies is really interesting when you dive in because you really, you're never really finished with the strategy. Um, yeah, the best players are always, like, changing things up, always improving. There's a whole sort of um, pro culture that I never knew about. Uh, like pro chess leagues and mm-hmm. things like that. They, there was recently a uh, a championship. Did you follow the the, the pro chess championship? Jan, uh, I won't attempt his Nepo. Uh, is yeah, his... often called Nepo. Yeah, uh, it's like Neptomichi or something like yeah. that. He's a a Russian. Um, he lost to Magnus. Magnus Carlson, the great the great Magnus Carlson, possibly the greatest uh, chess player of all time. Very well could be. And then and it's what's interesting about that is that he. He has more opportunity to be great because he lives in this era, yeah. because he's able to, and he has utilized the, the computer stuff. Right. So, there's computers now and um, AI now that are just so good at chess, and they, uh, so the pro players know what those lines would look like, so they they keep sort of driving themselves. Um, and the thing about Magnus is he will play moves. Uh, that nobody's thought about early in the game, like sixth or seventh move, he'll he'll have an innovation, mm-hmm. and he'll have this amazing line that guys are not ready for. And I think he beat Jan. It's the first uh, world championship win in a long time that happened over classical chess. So those are like five, six-hour-long games. So usually yeah, they end in amazing. draws. Yeah, usually they just they, they just draws. tie. Yeah. You know, they don't get too risky. They just draw. And, um, he won twice, I believe. I think he won two different games in the, he won in the two. series, yeah. um, which is rare. So, man, I, I hope everyone is just on the edge of their seat listening to this uh, story of the, the chess. But it was fascinating at the time to, to go through the games, see where he risked something. He did something different than anyone anyone had n- done before, and Nepo uh, couldn't keep up, or he, he I think he even actively blundered at one time, yeah, he which made, is he very rare. Huge mistake. And, like, this is the second best chess player in the world. That's the thing. So if you love excellence, if you're an Alabama football fan, yeah. if you just love watching the same guy be great and dominate, uh, Magnus Carlson is, but, is And he's man. great for the game, too, because he's he's about 35 or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's I mean, very – he's been young the whole – and he became a grandmaster when he was in his teens – Became maybe world champion when he was in his early twenties or something like that, and and he's been fun and and active and getting online playing people online. You could like join the queue to play Magnus, 
and try stuff against Magnus and get demolished by Magnus Carlsen in an online tournament. Yeah, and um, I'll, I'll bring some some spiritual oh, I've been waiting stuff for into this. Um, one of the most interesting things, I think, about the chess world is you get older grandmasters and like former world champions who are maybe 50, 50 years old, and they'll play the new up-and-comers. And by up-and-comers, I don't mean, like, in their 20s. I mean, like, 12 years old. Yeah. And you, okay, 50 years of, like, masterful chess experience versus a 12-year-old. Certainly, they're going to win. Certainly, they've seen everything. And these 12-year-olds will, will come and they'll beat these guys. And those are the up-and-coming stars, right? So I think Magnus Carlsen won, like, a really huge game when he was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, by the time he was 16 or 17, was was dominating. On a world stage. Um, And it just strikes me because I can recognize spiritual moments in my life and in other people's lives where the Lord has worked amazingly through some very young people and worked in the hearts of them. Um, So, like, I was nine years old at Camp Sector Maria, altar serving for the first time, and that's where I first experienced the Lord in the Eucharist, and he sort of revealed himself to me. Um, at the consecration and it was and I'm nine years old you know I'm this elf that's like flowing over my ankles and uh nearly burning myself with a candle and then suddenly um the creator of the universe is making himself known to me in my heart (laughs) uh that's insane you know and and I go back and if I have those experiences in prayer now I just recognize like Every moment of love that I've had for God started, not not just when I was nine, but at my baptism. Yeah. And to realize, like, the Lord is working in the hearts of our children, in the hearts of our, our elderly, in the hearts of, you know, everybody like this. That there are just going to be these these times where he's um, doing profound things in hearts that are, that we, you know, don't even recognize are there. Uh, I just think that's super cool. So there's something, there's something tied there. There is something there. I love it. Perhaps young hearts unencumbered by the world. Yeah, that we can learn from. Yeah, uh, I had a friend from UT who who sh- she shared with me some like journals from when she was like five or six, very similar thing. Like some, yeah. of the, it, it like looked like a saint's writings. It was like reading Saint Therese or something. It was like, you know, she's like six years old and like Lord, you know, that I I pray that you make every movement of mine yours and that I I give my heart and my day totally to you. You know, and like she's six, so she probably like went into something silly, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, played uh, with her toys. But uh, what what devotion, what love, you know, to be able to write a prayer like that as a child. And she she showed those to me, and she goes like, "Yeah, that's probably the best prayer I've ever prayed." <laughs> and just to recognize, like God is working in so much more than than we realize. Beautiful, John. Been an honor talking to you. Can't wait to talk more Lord of the Rings and play more chess for the next year. And folks, we'll see you around. Thank you, Nate. God bless. See y'all.